Hello and welcome to the Surgical Spirit Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Haider Al-Hakim, the Third Eye Doctor. Pull up a chair and get ready for some candid and uncompromising discussion with experts, innovators, agitators, and influential people from every corner of health and well-being. From inside the hospital to at home in the kitchen, we're leaving no stone unturned in our quest to uncover the secrets of healthier, happier, more successful, and less stressful lives. Thank you so much for joining us, and without further ado, let's meet this episode's guest. Hello, Dr. Manchit. How are you today? Oh, I'm fine, thank you. How are you? Yes, I'm well. Yes, yes, I'm well. Um, I've just come back from the gym, which is really nice. Uh, You know, the body is uh, very tired. Um, (laughs) You know, physically I'm tired, but sort of mentally I feel refreshed and sort of raring to go and happy to deal with the uh with the demons in my head so to speak so it's true what they say about exercising the body energizes the brain so that's quite interesting yeah for sure for sure i mean every time i've had you know downs in my uh, you know uh, mental state or i felt you know down and or depressed or frustrated or angry or sort of what have you um and I feel like giving up. There's a little light that sort of goes off in my head, saying, "Oh, you got to go to the gym now," <laughs> you know, and 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 um, really sweat it out. And um, I, I remember at one stage I was doing some videos for a, a Facebook group uh, about resilient doctors, um, and it was just a way of, you know, it was a bit of a bit of fun, really, you know, doing some videos in the gym, me sweating. Um, a lot of people enjoyed it, but some people got really upset by it. Uh, by it. I, I think it triggered them um, and they felt a bit, you know, I don't know what it was, but they didn't like me sweating in the gym and, and putting out the videos. Um, but yeah, for me, sweating uh, makes a big deal in my mental health. I think you raise this very important issue of awareness, isn't it? That when you are having this body telling you, to, yes, you need to get out of your current state and do something. And in your case, it's exercise. In other people's case, it might just be a walk or away from their desk. I think it's just awareness that I'm not in the place that I want to be at. And I think often we find that doctors that struggle with resilience or you know, in terms of coping with the strategies sometimes that awareness is missing or ignored because of other pressures. You know, as you said, I went to the gym, but why don't I do some work or complete my portfolio, do something else at this. So you end up leaving one treadmill, one sort of hamster wheel and go to another one. And you never get off the so-called hamster wheel. So therefore there is no time for the downtime as you call yourself in the gym. And that's your downtime. You yeah. can be yourself, you can do whatever you want, you know. And I think self-awareness is really important as as physicians. Is is that something that's being officially taught in, in current medical education? I don't think it is. I think it's sort of the more that people become aware of where their state is, you know, and, you know, people talk about mind and body being separate. No, they're not. They're together. You know, they're all the same. You know, we are who we are. And awareness of what we are doing, what why we're we doing what we're doing, and 
breaking out of these habits that are there for years and years often is the key to say, why am I stuck on the computer as soon as I get home? Because, oh, I need to do my portfolio, but why don't I take some time off, have some dinner with my family, have some downtime, and maybe attack the portfolio later on. So it's just, and I think it's something that more and more doctors that I come across need awareness. So just be aware of how you feel and respond to it. I think in your case, response is go to the gym. Don't just accept that, oh, I'm feeling tired, oh, I'm feeling tired, I need to do something to get my energy back. So it's oh. yeah. I mean, would you consider yourself to be um, a self-aware individual from before? Not from before. I think the, the, I think it's something that I'm more aware of than I was in my twenties, thirties. Okay, because I think it's something that I wish I had known when I was twenty-five, thirty. Because some of the sort of drive that you have sometimes takes over. You know, the drive to succeed, the drive to pass the exam, the drive to get the best CV in town for the next job. And I think sometimes you need to take a slightly backward step to say, what price am I paying for that drive? What is, you know, what am I missing out on my children growing up or not having time with the family, etc.? And losing some of my friends' connection. You know, how often do you hear stories that, People say, I haven't seen my friend for weeks. Now, I know COVID had his impact because it separated us from people. But since then, you know, some of the connections need reconnecting with, you know. How do you start connecting with? As human beings, we like to be connected. You know, we are in a societal system and that is nurturing, self-nurturing. And if we ignore that and we bypass it, then, you know, we lose an aspect of ourselves which we really need to be careful about that that there's a price to pay and and um you're born in in east africa in in, in kenya um is that is that correct yes i think sort of you know people often ask you you know who are you ask okay I'm, I'm an indian of indian parents born in kenya raised in kenya came to the uk qualified as a doctor in the UK, and I've worked most of my life in the UK. So in terms of cultural baggage that I bring, <laughs> there's the Kenyan sort of where I was born and bred, and there's the Indian heritage. And then obviously I've got an English wife. I've got sort of children of mixed heritage, you know, two daughters. So, you know, what sort of behaviors, what sort of cultures do you inculcate them in? You know, it's, it's, it's a mix. And I think it's teaches you different way of reacting, responding, I should say, rather than reacting in terms of what are the challenges. And I think I suppose some of them, my cultural background as and I suppose an Indian makes a difference. Um, but I'm born and bred in the UK sort of um, culture in terms of how I, and I think grow, I suppose I've grown in a way. And I think personally in that for me, it's massive. You know, that's my identity. You know, that's who I am. And 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 when you say Indian, what, what do you mean by that? What what values do you, do you mean by being Indian? Well, I think values of respecting people who are you know respect. I think hugely important people being to be respectful, um, and acknowledging that you know there are people who know better than you do listening and therefore able to receive feedback for example rather than being taken as criticism actually 
if their intention is to improve me as a person, as an educator, as a doctor, then I should listen to it. I should reflect on it and reflect on my behaviours. And um, I remember a time in my time when I was an obstetric SHO <clears throat> and the registrar at the time with me was less experienced than I was. And I was getting quite frustrated. And I remember my very wonderful consultant colleague took me to one side and she said to me, she said, you're a very good doctor, but you're beginning to irritate people because you're overreacting to the registrar situation because I was frustrated whether he couldn't do anything and he just stopped things. So, so in the end, I, that was very useful advice. I sat down and I said, she's absolutely right because I'm not doing myself any favours by reacting in a way which is inappropriate. And so that's sort of feedback. And that's partly, you know, because my background is, yes, you listen to feedback. You don't, you're not the font of all knowledge. You know, you're always learning. Um, and, and where would you say that your allegiance is to? Is it more Kenya, more India, more the UK? Do you have like a yearning to, <laughs> to um, any particular place? No, it's an interesting question because I went to Kenya after 50 years in the UK and it's a totally different place. Um, but, you know, if there's an athletics meeting and there's a Kenyan running, I am, you know, watching out for the Kenyan athlete. Although I haven't been in Kenya like 50 odd years. Um, so in terms of, you know, if there's a cricket match between, you know, India and England, I have mixed loyalties. I struggle, you know, where do I go? And, you know, it is it is challenging. And I think I think Norman Tebbit said years ago, the critic cricket test, you know, it's it's still difficult. I follow a lot of cricket. Um and some days it'll be one, some days it'll be the other. Um and it'd be a mixture and it's difficult. But I said um, that that's the Indian heritage, you know, but cricket in India is a sort of religion, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating, um, you know, complicated situation. Um, yeah, I, I think we're just complicated. I mean, you know, I was born in Iraq, but I've spent most of my time here in the UK. And and I'm originally from uh, from the Persian um, culture. So I've got sort of three, uh, you know, conflicting cultures that are sort of uh, pulling me apart, and sometimes I go towards one or, or the other or the third one. Um, I guess it's this thing, you know, you take the best from all the worlds and sort of bring them all together and try and do the best with all three. I think what you're pointing out is that the whole multicultural thing, the multicultural society we live in, it has got huge benefits. And until we start understanding each other's cultures, and some of the pressures that that bring, and sometimes the, you know, the lack of understanding of different cultures, lack of assimilation, often leads to, I suppose, for want of a better word, in some instances, discouraging people from expressing themselves. And I think that's where we get it wrong because sometimes some of the cultures, the, the stuff that they bring in, is so rich. If you only sit and listen. And I think that would you know we both bring something different. And if you sat us down with, you know, an English-born and bred person, you know, how do we, they will share something of their that thing? And it's and we are very lucky to have that multicultural society that we work in, particularly in medicine. I think we have, you know, more and more multicultural um, 
in some parts of the country, 30-40% of our doctors are international graduates from all over the world. And how do we integrate them? And how do we make sure that the medical care that we deliver is to the standard that is expected of the local population? And but you also, know, I mean, how do we develop? Yeah, I mean, you've de- developed, you've you've shown that it is possible to integrate these different cultures together and 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 work in in an integrated fashion. I think we both done it in some extent. You know, that you expressing how you managed, the, you know, your heritage into the UK system, and mm. I mean, I've done my best in terms of doing it. But it's something that you keep working on, isn't it? I'm sure it's mm. something that is constantly ongoing. Yeah. And sometimes there are challenges, as you said, you know, this is what my culture is telling me. This is what my work pressure is telling me. And for example, you know, one of the things that some of our international graduates struggle with is what they call assertiveness. You know, what is assertiveness? You know, standing up for what's right. And I have a strong belief that you've got to stand up for what's right. But at the same time, medicine is a very hierarchical profession. And how do I, you know, talk about what is right in a situation where it's a hierarchical situation? How do I, sometimes I need to accept the fact that I may need to say nothing for the time being until the time is right, until I have the opportunity with the right audience to express what's bothering me, forget my meaning. You know, I think it's, and it, that's sort of often the skill set that we need to start acquiring is when do I make that challenge? for it not to be considered inappropriate for me to be then dismissed that he is always a troublemaker, he's always saying these things. You know, I'm sure you come across this expression. How do you come across? How do you actually do that in a manner which is respectful to the individual that you're talking to, but at the same time expressing your own needs? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you know, that's a very good topic. I mean, we'll come... Uh, back to that um what what made you choose nottingham um for your undergraduate studies well i sort of went to nottingham university at the time and uh, i got interviewed and my uncle took me there because my dad was abroad because he was in kenya because that's where he had his business and um <laughs> at the interview i remember i got asked why do you want to do medicine and i happened to say I said to the professor, I said, that's a stupid question to ask because I can give you all the platitudes about me wanting to save the world as a doctor. Um, but simply, I want to do medicine because I just want to. And he very kindly, and sadly, this professor sadly passed away, very kindly said to me, he said, the reason we're asking this question is to see whether you have any insight in what a doc- being a doctor is and explain and anyway, so I came out of the interviews thinking, God, I'd blown it. And there's me being, you know, speaking your mind. <laughs> Again, in that conversation we alluded to earlier. And yet I might have blown my chance. I told my uncle, the uncle said, you silly boy, you know, you should be careful what you say. And four weeks later, I got an unconditional offer from Nottingham. So, so I studied Nottingham, went to Nottingham because of that, because A, it was a lovely place. I loved the campus. But three years down the line, I was clinical medicine. I saw the same professor again on his ward round, and I said, can I possibly speak to you? And he said, I know what it's about. And I fell in love. 
And when I met him, you know, 15, 20 minutes later, he said, I know what you're going to ask me, but ask anyway. So I told him, I said, what happened at the interview? I was probably a bit outspoken. And he said, actually, you woke us up because we were having interview after interview, been asking the question all day. And nobody asked us, why are you asking this question? And so therefore, you know, we thought it's somebody we want in our medical school because at the time, Nottingham was a new medical school. We were the first graduates from Nottingham Medical School. And we were only 48 then. Now I think it's over 300. <clears throat> but And I think that was what attracted me. And it was a new medical school with totally different style of you know, training, teaching. And um, so, yeah, that was a move into a different sphere by just being out, maybe outspoken, but I don't, I don't think I was being outspoken. I just felt that the question wasn't appropriate because it didn't, you know, I could give you all the sort of standard answers, you know, but that's not what I want. Was that the sort of Kenyan response coming out um, automatically, unconsciously? Well, it's probably exactly, probably just to say, this is how I felt as a sort of 16 year old saying, what do I say to this people in, in front of me? They want me to give them the standard answer. And I had no interview prep. I just turned up at the interview. <laughs> I'd been in the UK for about, at this stage, about nine months. You know, it wasn't long. Um, so, you know, you just go and do that. And and what impressed you about the UK sort of being there a first time and um, you know, what, what sort of attracted you to it? Oh, my first impression was when I got off the plane, I was in shorts in the middle of March and it was blooming freezing. I couldn't understand how cold it was. So that's my first impression. But during my sort of <clears throat> education phase, I think it was, I had to do my A-levels quite early on because um, we landed in March the U, you know, the UK education system runs from sort of you know, June to September or June onwards, but the Kenyan system ran from calendar year January to January. So I'd done about three months of A levels, and I remember meeting the headmaster at the local school, and he said, um, "You have two options: you can wait till July, September time, sort of to get into the upper fifth or lower fifth, or the upper fifth, you know." Or you can take the exam in June and if you pass, you can go to the sixth form. So I decided, you know, I'll do the exam. So I studied. I've never studied hard in my life. I said, in those three months, I covered a year's curriculum and I passed the exam. So I then went to the upper six and then obviously went on to apply for medical school from there on. And that was the other challenge. And I remember my new headmaster at this stage, you know, asked me a single question. He said, why do you want, you know, be a doctor? And I tell that, you know, that's what I want to do. And he said, um, he said something which still sticks with me to this day. And he said, um, some people are born clever. Some people work hard and you, you are neither. <laughs> and my chemistry teacher was a lovely man, Mr. Moore, I still remember him by his foot. I don't know his first name, never knew it. And he said, how dare he say that? Does he know what you've done to get this far? And he was my great support. And I think he's the person I still think about on him. For, you know, quite a lot. You know, he's instrumental in spurring me on. He said, just carry on. You know, you'll be fine. And well, here I am, sort of, I think. So there are people in your life that matter. And you suddenly say, actually, they make a difference. They have made a difference. 
and Mr. Moore was one of them. Wow. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I had um, an awesome maths teacher, uh, Mr. Chang, and um, he was a gentleman, you know, you know, very softly spoken, uh, hardworking. And, you know, if you got things wrong, he wouldn't, you wouldn't see, you know, uh, negative emotion on his face. It was just calm and it was fine. And, and it would give you the answer and, would go on to the next challenge so you know there wasn't this um uh what, what's the word sort of instant um uh lashing <laughs> you know beating you know sort of thing so you got encouraged and you know you put on your armor again and off you go i think the word you mentioned earlier on doing the uh earlier conversation is judgment and there's no judgment he wanted you to succeed and i think his intention was to sort of how best to support you and i think if we start with that mindset you know what you know how can i best support the individual in front of me and make them the best person they can be that's a fantastic start i think that's what you know the two people who mentioned did for us both you know to say how do i get this individual to be the best they can be and not be judgmental and not to put them down just because they got something wrong. And I think um, we all get things wrong. I mean, that's life. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult with medicine because we're expected to be perfect and we're expected to make no mistakes whatsoever. And, you know, that's a kind of uh, myth that's perpetuated in modern, uh, in, in the wider society. Um, or maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> no, I think that that's a myth two ways. It works both ways, isn't it? We we want to be perfect, so we don't show our vulnerabilities. We don't show that we are also struggling sometimes. And I think part of our issues with some of our burnout issues, stress, are probably related to that. And secondly, the public expectations, you know, the whole media portrayal is that the doctor will do no wrong, can't do no, you know. And in a way, I think so that puts additional pressure on and what we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis, I'm not saying that doctors, are, you know, but in the pressures you deal with in terms of terminal illness, people's lives who deal with, that puts immense pressure on yourself too. So, you know, I want to do the right thing. I don't want to do anything wrong. don't want anybody to suffer. So, and all in all, it's saying, yes, we work in a system that is fragmented, which is risks everywhere. You know, and how do I mitigate every single risk in every single situation? And sometimes it doesn't work with the best of intentions. And I think we've got to be kind to ourselves that did I do the best thing at the time with everything available? If the answer is yes, then I can live with that. You know, if there are things that I want to be doing differently, I need to learn. And I need to seek advice, you know, whoever is training for me. And so I think with that mindset, we will go a long way. And equally, the person who is giving you the advice and support has to be understanding of where you are at that time in your life. And, you know, in terms of people, you know, we have, as I said, we have a multicultural workforce, but there are societal pressures in certain parts of the world now. You know, if you are a Somali doctor working in the UK, Somalia is going through a hell of a turmoil at the moment. What impact is having on you at the time if your family is still in Somalia? So I think there are other conflicts in the world similarly affecting doctors that are working in the UK. So 
how understanding are we of their connections and the impact of that individual? And I think that's where kindness comes in. That's where compassion comes in. Yeah, I'm, and, and and my impression is is that this is that that understanding is still not, you know, ingrained within the wider culture of, um, specifically here, you know, of the NHS. I think it's still got a long way to go. You know, I mean, we're getting sound bites, and it's you know within the constitution um, framework of, of of the GMC and the NHS, but it it still hasn't seeped out into the practicalities of of um, the day activities. What do you think? Am I am I off? No, I think I think you're right in the sense that I think the expectations of the training programs are such this is your training program this is the length of the training program sometimes the rigidity of the training program in itself is a problem so it puts pressures on the trainers to say i must get you through in the specified time so if that specified time is being eroded into by different things then how do i manage that now the system allows for that to happen but how many of our trainers are aware of the fact for example a doctor can take time out to training. They just have to say that I need to take some time out to training because of personal stuff or health reasons, whatever, and it's perfectly allowable. So there is flexibility. How do we exercise that flexibility for that individual in front of us? And how do we put our ego to one side that, oh, I must get this doctor through in the three years because my track record is so good and everybody's passed and this is the first person who is now potentially struggling, if you want to be a better word, you know? And how do we put those to one side? said, everybody's different. And this comparison thing that we go through medicine, you know, you're not as good as my last doctor. I mean, that's nonsensical, you know, comparing people is wrong. And I think it happens so often in medicine. That, oh, my last registrar was fantastic. Oh, what, what does that tell me about you, for example? What does that, how do you feel if I mentioned that in front of you? I say, well, that's you telling me I'm not that good or whatever. So some of our usual sort of colloquial nonsense phrases, I should say, nonsense, shouldn't say that, are frankly not helping. And we should start being a bit more considerate. And every individual in front of us is a person. And the person has interconnections rather than saying, okay, they are a sort of doctor in training. They're all homogenous. They're not. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, go, going back to Nottingham, was there anything about the course that, that, that you found, found very challenging and, you know, wish it would be different? I think the Nottingham course was new because it had, you know, the, what well, the learning was very much based on systems rather than, anatomy, biochemistry, whatever. So you had the nervous system. So we learned all about the nervous system from the anatomy to the physiology to the biochemistry. And so that was a different way of learning. So in terms of integrating different bits, that was fun in a way also. It was also interspersed with clinical visits. So for example, when you were doing that neurology module, you would go to the hospital and watch some neurology patients. So you could integrate the clinical bit with the patient side of things. So that was hugely, you know, fun, in fact, great fun at the time. And the other thing was that because we were the first ever medics, 
people listening to our experience and you know, how do you find this you know give us some feedback you know how can we improve it there's always this ability to say let's listen to you and so i i love that bit in the sense and like because only 48 of us so we knew everybody all the class knew every single doctor you know you knew all your colleagues and now with 300 i wonder how many people actually know each other as human beings you know that and so i think the new system did the huge numbers of people in a particular year um i'm not sure whether that that's what i love that bit of only 48 i think 43 graduated in the end for different reasons but i think there were 14 you know 14 in us so that was fun and like that way they were trained us the way they listened to us and the way we were just welcome wherever we went because we were a novelty at that time Yeah, medical students are novelty now they're seen as being a challenge you know how do i accommodate 20 medical students in a gynec clinic or an orthopedic clinic or whatever yeah 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 and and did you make any good enemies you know out of your fellow students i don't think so i think we had a very <laughs> very tell you what the interesting thing was there were people i was slightly older than the average medical student at the time there were people who were older than me there were one or two people who'd done other degrees you know so we had a nice bunch of people who were slightly more experienced in terms of life we had some younger people and i think we had cohorts of six or seven as our you know groups that we worked together and we also enjoyed life we you know one of the first things we did in nottingham at the time was set up what we called the medics ball you know there's no such thing and uh, four of us went to see the vice chancellor to say we want to set up the medics ball and said why should i pay for it i said we're not expecting you to pay for it he said the engineers ball is making a loss and he said okay if we cover all the costs would you let us do it and he said on a one off basis we'll let you do it now he's still going nearly 40 years later that the, you know the medics ball is still one of the events of the year because it was superbly and because we were the first lot every single professor every single educator came to it with their partners and it didn't make any money but it broke even and the vice chancellor was very impressed that a bunch of medical students could organize a ball from scratch and run it so i think that was part of the way of that we ended up getting ourselves in the system you know at nottingham the medical school is still big now it's obviously massive and been in the news for the wrong reasons recently with the maternity services but that you know it's a fantastic medical school yeah 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 i mean i was uh, my my dad was there from uh, 79 to 83 he did his phd there um in in zoology um yeah loved it you know we stayed on the campus you know we were um in dunkirk um yeah it was lovely it's a lovely city uh you know it's a lovely city in nottingham itself and it's um big enough to do what you want to and small enough um to sort of I suppose walk around in those days I think now obviously it's got a lot, lot bigger but uh, at the time it was massively important for to have a, um have that camaraderie and you know the group setting and there's also that you know trend 
River Trent, you can have, you know, you can have a boat trip in the middle of the university campus. You know, you can have all sorts of stuff. Really good fun. Yeah, and the football was booming then as well. Oh yes, oh, Brian Clough, <laughs> Brian Clough. Yes, he was God at the time. He was doing fantastic stuff, and uh, he was uh, it was phenomenal. I think it was being in that city. Um, it was phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. What he was up to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I really enjoyed it then, and and I mean, for for some reason, I think the seventies were the best, and then the eighties came second, and then it was all downhill from then on. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of uh, I think after Brian Clough it's very difficult to follow that success if you look same thing happened in Man United currently aren't they? you got Alex Ferguson who's a hugely successful manager how do you follow a massively successful manager um, and it's going to be a period of turmoil until you get that resolved yeah but football connects the society together and the society, you know, we used to go to football matches, not very frequently because, you know, often you were working. In those days, we worked at one in two anyway, so it wasn't easy to get to. But um, we watched it on Saturday night because that was the only match of the day you could watch. None of this everyday television where football was everywhere. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. you know, I mean, it's definitely the modern form of religion, um, you know, particularly here in the UK. Um, you know, there is a belief system, there is an ideology, there is a family structure, and, you know, there's a sacred space that people go to and worship. Um, yes. And sometimes they get their answers, uh, you know, their prayers answered, and sometimes they get, they get a resounding no. So, um, um, yeah, that's that's the modern way of, of uh, professing one's religion these days. Um, what, what, what got you interested in? in obstetrics and gynecology? Um, I was a, started life as a GP trainee. And uh, my first job was acute medicine. Then I did neonatal pediatrics. And my third job was um, in, in as an obstetrician. I, and I just loved it. I went in there. I, was, I had a bunch of registrars who couldn't do enough to help me in the system. And I got to do plenty of deliveries. And and I remember when I was finishing, um, my consultant then said to me, so what are you planning to do next? And I said, I'm going to be a GP. He said, well, if you ever change your mind and want a job, let me know. And uh, I remember six months later, I rang him up. And he said, we're interviewing this afternoon. You know, why don't you come and we'll see how you get on. So I've been there ever since. And it was just purely because I was so, I enjoyed the specialty so much that I felt this is, I'm, as a student, I wasn't sure when I did obstetrics as a student. It, I did enjoy it, but not to the same extent. But when I became an SHO in, as a GP trainee, it was fantastic. And just the camaraderie and the support that there was because the registrar would stay out with me all night when I was learning. So we did everything together. And so you had the experts standing next to you. So you didn't have to ring him. You didn't have to phone him. He was there next to you. And so therefore, you know, you just um, did what was necessary. So it sounds as though that the support was just as important as as the actual work oh, itself. Massively important. You know, massively important because it made a difference to learning on your own 
and not wanting to disturb the registrar, having the registrar next to you was to say, how do I do this? Oh, am I doing the right thing? And he nod his head, you know. And so that was hugely important, massively important. And um, and that's the level of support that sometimes is missing in some of our current supporting mechanisms, I think. And that was, I'm talking about the 70s, you know, it's a long time ago. And and did, did that leave a kind of sort of taste in your mouth about how you would deliver um you know supportive um, healthcare to your colleagues it's yes um i think we all have a vision of what support looks like and if we've had fantastic support then you know what it looks like now yes i you know the pressures are different on everybody currently there is no excuse for not supporting a doctor in training. Yes, there are challenges for all of us to say, how do we do it in the best possible way? Am I distant enough for nobody, so I'm incontactable, or am I available? What does available mean? You know, phone me when you want me, or I'm here physically working with you. So I think... Um, it is a very pressured sort of working environment now, more so than I remember it. And the need for support is even more than before. We have all sorts of systems in place. We have education supervisors, we've got clinical supervisors, we've got training program directors, we've got all sorts of people. Yet the support on the shop floor is so variable from one specialist to another. And that's sort of something that does concern me. How do we provide support that is uniform? And that's the challenge for us to say, how do we get the system to give people what they need? And, you know, I, I don't know the answer to that. I think at the moment everybody's under pressure, you know, consultants under pressure, educators are under pressure. Uh, how do we exercise senior leadership to say that certain functions take priority, that training is just as important as running a clinic, just as important as doing an operation? Because we are training the future doctors that are going to be looking after us and our families. And if we don't pay attention to them now, what are the consequences going forward? And by the sounds of it, that you know these serious conversations um are not in place or have not taken place to a to an extensive uh in an extensive way i think sort of there are systems in place but how do the systems actually work in practice mm. and what of the conversations at a local level, I said there are some specialties which are very good at supporting doctors you know they're fantastic those structures they have the induction programs they have, the sort of programs to make sure they're working at the level they should be working at. And yet there are others which are very patchy, which are still, you know, based on the old system. You know, I'm the consultant, you're the SHO, and you just do what I tell you, rather than saying, you know, it's a flatter system. The hierarchy in medicine sometimes gets in the way of saying effective training. What's to stop me as a consultant clerking a patient when the team is busy? Nothing. 
if I want to do it. But if I'm to sit on my high pedestal, yes, it won't happen. Because it's the SHO's job, it's the registrar's job, not mine. Rather than acknowledging this is a team effort, we're all in it together. Yeah, yeah. And and did you notice a change in your working when, when you got your first consultant post, did you think? You know, I, well, I, I can be look, different. Hmm. I think you can, as an individual, you can do whatever's necessary. Um, I've been, like I said, got involved in education quite early on. I became, you know, soon after I became a consultant, became the college tutor. Um, a few years later, I became <clears throat> the director of medical education in the trust, you know, and then I became an associate dean, became head of foundation. So I've always been at that level. But so how do you change the system? You change the system from the inside. Um, for example, one of the things we did in my day in Nottingham was that we changed the foundation training program. The foundation training program was one day a week, one hour a week, sorry, one hour a week, which is meaningless. So I changed that to one day a month where they all came for the whole day. And therefore, you could have a proper session with the whole day. You have a program on whatever you want to discuss. It didn't start till about half past nine, ten o'clock to give people the opportunity if they're on nights to have a rest or come back. But it finished at 4.30. So there was a decent time for them to go. It provided people to know each other. So they spend the whole day together. So they, all the foundation doctors in that hospital spend the day together, apart from the few that were on call that couldn't make it because of nights, etc. But so you're changing the system by sort of not sticking to the, you know, tick box exercise. You only get an hour a week, forget it, you know. A day a month, much more productive. And we did the same with the foundation, two-year doctors. It met with a bit of resistance from the trust in the first instance. But once it was in, great, you know, people say it's a fantastic idea because we don't have ones. On that Tuesday, the F1s are not there, full stop. We'll manage. And the program is advertised in advance. So nobody needs to be inconvenienced. Patients aren't inconvenienced. The clinics are booked appropriately. So there are certain things you can change. We had a budding system that the F2s budded the F1s. So therefore, when they started, you had a young person who'd gone through with themselves a year before, coaching, supporting, mentoring their F1s who are new with their portfolio. So simple, simple things can happen. And these guys are quite intelligent. They're not, you know, they are intelligent people. You know, give them the responsibility and they look after their colleagues. So simple stuff we did. And I think that was fun. Um, and it's just having to think of a different plane rather than the same old plane or you know, let's look at something differently. Yeah, yeah. And uh, have 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 you always been involved in education? Was 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 that a passion or were you the right person at the right time? Um <clears throat> sending in the right application? Bit of both. And I always had a passion, but then opportunities come. The opportunities come because one of the my big bugbearers is that we have doctors in training. We have annual appraisals for them. We look at their portfolio. We decide that what they need to do, what the gaps in their training are. 
you know, in order for you to get this high-powered job, you need to do a bit more research. Let's have some publications. We put all that in. So we have a development plan. You appoint a consultant now in their early 30s, often enough. And after that, nothing happens. Nobody takes you under their wing to say, hey, you know, you've got a fantastic reputation for training, you know, really good. You're passionate about training. What is it that you need to have for the next job when it's available? Do you want to do some education, you know, supervision? Do you want to do a training program, et cetera? So developing people in that sphere is important. So when the job opportunity comes, you're ready for it. And I was lucky enough to have that opportunity. So, if, for example, when I became director of medical education, it was the right time. I'd done my preceptorship in terms of being college tutor, getting involved in meetings that I didn't get paid for. Normally, getting paid for just do that because somebody's running a meeting you go to it so your cv was ready <clears throat> so the opportunities came but you're also ready and i think at the moment the opportunities come for people when they're not ready how do we make them ready how do we pick them up early enough to enthusiasm that this is the enthusiasm you have how do i now target that for you to be in the right spot in six months' time or two years' time when that job is going to be vacant. And I think developing consultants into different roles. So management is another role I took on a management role soon after that um, <clears throat> by leaving the trust as an obstetrician gynecology and went to Stafford when the Stafford, you know, since story was breaking. I went there as an external medical director having resigned from my post. <clears throat> and that was a risky situation. But at the time, I felt that that's the job I wanted to go and do. Um, <clears throat> so was I ready for it? At the time, yes. Did I have the right qualifications? Some I did, some I didn't. Some I, you know, uh, I'd done a lot of leadership training as part of my education training. I went to Harvard for the Harvard Education Leadership course. I went to Oxford training course. I've done lots of stuff. So when I applied for the medical director's job, I had the leadership skills that were necessary. And obviously some of them are hard learned on the shop floor. Um, so the CV was ready for that job. Yeah, yeah. And and um, um, what was it like sort of walking into the fire? It was um, it was an interesting time. It was an interesting time because a, you go from one trust to another where you're an outsider. So you don't have any friends, you don't have any allies. So that's the big challenge on any externally appointed medical director is how do you develop the reputation that you want when you have no friends because you are seen as the person who is now come to sort of resolve the issue, but they don't see the problem because there's a lot of, um, I suppose there's denial in the system that it we, we weren't that bad, you know, other places just as bad, etc. How do you, how do you cope with that? And <clears throat> part of our, and I had a very good team. I had a fantastic chairman, and the chief exec and the team were fantastic. You know, they're very, very equally focused in terms of improving the system, addressing the concern, 
listening to people. I think part of our time was listening to people, sitting down, being visible, walking around the hospital, talking to people in different places. They, how are things for you? And and that was the whole listening and the visibility bit was vastly important in terms of getting some of the cultural aspects addressed. Um, and I think this is where some of our current leaders need to get out of the boardroom and spend time on the wards, go to the wards and talk to people, listen to them. And doesn't mean, you know, as a medical director, you can't talk to nurses because you can. You're an executive director of a trust. So therefore, you've got executive responsibility to respond to, for every member of staff. Um, so you learn for how the nurses are working, how the portering system works how the telephony system works. So you spend half a day in the telephony room. So, And none of this time is ever wasted because you learn so much about the whole, how the organization connects. And what surprised you the most about the Mid-Staffordshire um, organization? It's two bits. One, obviously, what I mentioned, the denial. In some quarters, there was denial that things weren't as bad as people they portrayed. But the other bit was the desire to change. There's a whole cohort of people who said, yes, we need these things have been bugging us for a while, but nobody's listening. Now people are wanting to change. Yes, you're willing to help and change. So there was a huge group of people who wanted to change. And that was very heartening because then you could work with them to say, how do we change the system? How do we address the issues within the reports? Because we have to. How do we, you know, we had regular meetings with, you know, a group called Cure the NHS, which is which is the patient group that raised all the issues, which brought it all to light. And the previous leadership team had ignored them, refused to talk to them. We used, you know, we meaning the chairman, the chief exec, and I used to meet with them once a month, face to face. And these are families, bereaved families, families that have suffered a lot of trauma, listening to their pain, listening to their stories. And we would come out of that meeting quite battered and bruised. But we did it on, and this, these were evening meetings. They wouldn't start till 6 7 o'clock. We wouldn't get home till half past 9, 10 o'clock. But they were they were hugely important for us to understand how the trust had gone wrong in certain situations. And I think this theme is recurring because if you look at the current maternity stuff, the maternity issues that are going on, the key thing people are saying is nobody listening to us. You know, patients, you know, parents have lost children and they said, the team don't want to listen to us. And that was a similar theme in Stafford. So why are we revisiting this 13, 14 years later when people are still not listening? And I find that really a challenge. Why why, why have we not changed? Why have we not listened to what people think? You know? And those meetings, like I said, were very uncomfortable for all of us to listen to because some of the stories were harrowing. They were horrible stories to listen to. Horrible because of the pain inflicted on the individuals. And we had a desire to say, this can't happen again. This must change. We must change because it can't happen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the, 
the art of listening is never it's never easy and um we kind of dabble in it and then we leave it alone <laughs> you know at our peril i think this listening here is from patients who've lost loved ones it is uncomfortable we all been there when you listen to somebody and if you're giving somebody bad news you have to be there and i think this is the same is that when you something has gone wrong you have to listen to the story you can't butt in to say but this that and the other because that's a defense mechanism we all have you don't want that let's listen to the story how was it for you on the day what what didn't work what was the sync system you would want to put right for it not to happen again and some of the things we were doing in 2009 to 2012 are being reinvented by the NHS now we're doing it 10 12 years ago in Stafford like patient stories at board met at board level we had a patient story at every monthly board meeting that the patient would come and tell their story for the board to listen to and the whole board would listen to it and some of the stories were pretty harrowing now that's still not happening in the majority of trusts why have we not in why we ignored all that and that concentrated that board meeting to that concern of that patient whether it was the fractured neck of female patient who had an outcome that was adverse what was the outcome you know so how do we deal with that so lots of stuff that we were doing death reviews you know people who had sadly died that was we doing it 2009 to 2012 so 12 13 years later you know we've got all sorts of systems in place but what is fundamentally different and that's the sort of key question i keep asking myself you know why aren't we doing some of the stuff that was happening in 2009 10 and now in 2023 we're still revisiting it do, do do you have any answers why why this is the case i think it's this in the in the whole inability of the nhs to learn in a way you know it's sort of if you remember over 20 years ago there's a document produced by liam donaldson called the organization with the memory people have forgotten the document that was the first document they said we must start learning and that was over 20 years ago and if you pick that document up today you will find that some of the things in that document are still happening today so what is why is it not taken us over 20 years to learn from what was in that document which is like the lemon donalds at the time was the chief medical officer and that was a fantastic document it's a very powerful document if you read through that some of the stuff is still happening today and he said why is it that now is it because we have this blame culture because we must find somebody to blame at the end of it and therefore people don't disclose their sort of hiding things away you know we got to say how do we learn you know these things go wrong in the best of systems okay sadly i'm not condoning it i'm not you know making an excuse for it but even robert francis acknowledged that if you read the first part of his you know independent report he said that even in the best organizations things will go wrong but is our inability to learn from those that's the mistake inability to acknowledge them in the first place 
to say yes to the person in front of you, yes, we got it wrong. We could have done this. This could have been an intervention. And all I can do is apologize to you now. Can't undo that. How honest am I? And this duty of candor was introduced. All the systems are in place, but even the CQC will admit that duty of candor is not being uniformly in, implemented in every single trust. But the answer is, why not? You know, why can't people be honest when the outcomes are not as desired? Because no medical practitioner, no nurse practitioner wants to hurt a patient. Nobody goes to work to do harm. Sadly, if things happen, how do we even acknowledge it and learn from it without saying it's so-and-so's fault, so-and-so should have done this, so-and-so should have done No, hang on a minute. Let's look at the systemic view of it. The 80-20 principle, the Pareto principle, still applies in medicine. Every single incident, if you start looking at it properly, 80% is organizational. Only 20% is individual or individuals. And that still applies to healthcare. And yet, we pick the 20% and we ignore the 80%. You know, the shortages of staff, the lack of equipment, that's not the individual issue. The lack of bed, somebody standing in an A&E queue, you know, that's, an, that's not an individual issue. And yet these issues are pushed to one side and the individual who did the final act in terms of prescribing something or not prescribing something is the one that is in the frame. And that's where we need to start getting away from it because that doesn't do anybody any good. We've got to get away from that to say, how do we start learning and acknowledging that we are also human beings? We're not machines as doctors. Yeah. I mean, the cynical me talk, you know, thinks about the, the financial consequences of of changing the system because because it's so lucrative or, you know, it has a lot of financial um, incentive behind it. Um I guess that's a cynical view, which is why the system's still perpetuated and and upheld. In what respect? In financial sort of. Which... Well, I mean, you know, uh, the NHS is a is a big cash cow. Yeah. You know? um, and you know, particularly now with sort of digital health and digital NHS, and <laughs> it's got a big budget, and it's sort of maintaining, you know. Uh, Good but financial we, incentives. But if you look at the amount of money that's paid out in litigation fees every single year, and a just resolution pays out millions every yeah. single year. Yeah, billions, yeah. Billions. If we were to put that money into, say, how do we now put that money into something different that's concrete that'll make a difference? And how do we then make it happen? Organization by organization. You know, the central edicts you know, coming from the top down, don't always work. People have a tick box exercise. We tick the equality box, okay? So are we now in a situation where discrimination doesn't occur in the NHS? Hmm. You know the answer to that. I don't need to answer it. But so the central edict is some, every single trust will have an equality diversity individual whose job it is to make sure everything is done by the book etc yet 
there are huge issues with in integrating people from different parts of the country, world, huge issues in senior positions. If you look at board representations at all sorts of trusts, are the board representations fair for the community that they serve? I'm not sure they are in most trusts, you know. That, you know, it's that sort of thing. How do we get the representation of the people that are served, being served, representing, you know, I want people like me on the board. I want other people like me on the board. You know, this is, it's, um, I remember when, you know, Coco Goff won the you know, the U.S. Open. She was saying, you know, I didn't see myself as the black girl winning the U.S. Open until people like Serena Williams and all those people started doing it. And those are the role models you follow because you've seen somebody do it. And it's, where is the board representation? Equality, diversity applies across the patch, not just, you know, exclude the board from it and everybody else must, you know, uh, and senior positions in every single organization do that represent every single, you know, and I think that's where it's all, we need to get a place where people feel wanted and people feel that they are, they belong for what, you know, they belong. How can we do that? I think how do we actually look at our board constitution first, you know, looking at ourselves to say, have I got the right board? And most of the time, I think it's, if you go back to the 50s and 60s, if you look at New York police officers, they're all six foot tall. They were all, they were all male, all white, six foot something. They're all the same because they're all appointed like each other. Now it's different. And until you start acknowledging that they're all the same, why are they all the same? So if you look at a board constitution, you know, if you look at the board members in every single board, what do they look like? You know, you go do that exercise now. If you go on Google and look up the trust board, you look at the members. Are they representing the ethnic minorities they are serving? You know, that's the challenge to anybody. Look at the board, you know, are they, are they the right people? Have they got the right background? Is it because you're my friend or uh, there's a non-exec job coming? Can you apply for it? Do I, do I keep on like-minded people who don't, the word you mentioned earlier on, don't challenge the status quo, you know, it carries on. And we've got to start asking the questions. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. We've got to ask the questions and and um, posing challenging questions is is the right way forward. You know, the Socratic yes. method, so to speak. Yeah. But I think it's asking questions in a manner, you know, not being sort of, you know, not you know, just controversial. It's just say, you know, are we? Do we have the right mixture of people? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we're not. Um, I, I, you know, I'm not the kind of person that says that. You know, the whole institution is is um, uh, you know uh, super racist and super misogynist mm. and you know uh, no good uh, for twenty twenty three. But you know, um, as we started this podcast, we we, we talked about being respectful, mm. respectfully asking the challenging questions. 
I totally agree with you. I don't think every single organization is either one of the two things you mentioned. But I think we've got to ask ourselves the question, is it representative of the people we serve? And as a, and asking a respectful question. If the answer is yes, okay, I'll take your word for it. But you've got to demonstrate that by your deeds as well, not just by ticking boxes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and sort of, uh, what is it like being being the big the big honcho the big chief executive? Well, I had a, yes, I went to King's Lynn <laughs> as chief exec uh, at the time when the trust was um, put into special measures. Um, again, I was very fortunate in having a fantastic chairman, um, David Dean, and we worked very well together. We went in as in you know external people. And again, challenging the status quo because some of the practices um, were considered right. And I think the other thing that's worth bearing in mind is that we went there, trust, we were, the trust put in special measures largely because of financial issues. We mentioned finance in the NHS. But when we started looking under the surface, there were, there were quality issues too. So finance and quality are intricately linked. So, you you know, if somebody says, oh, we've got no financial issues, we've got lots of quality issues, it's, it's, it's never, they don't separate. Often they're interlinked. And there were issues that needed addressing, but we were lucky enough to have, I said, the chairman was great. We had people at the trust level who wanted to change. We, I've met some fantastic people doctors, managers who wanted to change the system because they said they've been left behind. And some of the issues that are now coming to light about the trust, that the walls are falling down, the roofs are leaking, they were leaking when I was there. By the time there was no money to put aside to sort that out. And we were asked to sort it out internally. Um, so you did the best you can at the time. But now obviously things have got worse because the weather's got worse. So obviously the decision will have to be whether they get a new hospital or not. What desperately needs a new hospital? Because it's a very old building that probably needs a new place. But And obviously that's not for me to decide. But I think that was the challenge there was to how do you manage? We changed lots of things in the system. We had a culture change program, which was from the ground up, not from the top down. We had focus groups who looked at how you, what are the things you need to change? How do we change them? We brought external experts in, experts in sort of how do you slowly culture change. You can't culture change by producing 300 documents. You know, you change it by design, by slowly. Um, we, I spent a night shift in the hospital working around at night because what happens at night? Do I go to bed? No, I don't. I walk around and see what happens. How does the hospital function at night? So visibility became a huge issue. And I learned that from my Stafford days. I implemented that in Kings Lane. Like I said, the, my, I had a chairman who was phenomenal. Um, and we got a lot of things done. And then obviously we were only interim because we weren't, we, we didn't sign up for long-term contracts. Um, but it, you know, it was different when we left. But chair, you know, changing chief exec every six months, nine months doesn't help. You know, you need continuity. And if you look at the best forming trusts are now where they got stable leadership. And I think the thing also is that when you 
go to new challenging trusts. You've got to make sure that the team that you have is the right team and they have the right support. So if you, you know, you support your medical director, you support your finance director, you know, you don't sort of pay the big I am sort of thing. You know, you are a team, you're part of a big team, you know, you're only leading the team. And that's quite an important lesson as a chief executive learning that you don't run the hospital on your own, that the board runs it. And you are just the executive officer responsible for every function working properly. Um, would you consider sort of going back and, and you know, being a chief executive on a, on a more permanent basis? Sometimes the answer would be yes, or the rest probably no. <laughs> I think... What I, I feel I have is I have a lot of experience. I have a lot of, you know, lessons that I've learned myself um, that I can bring to the party, so to speak. Um, whether you pair up with somebody younger and say, okay, how do we now make sure the best leadership works? And I think my I would prefer a role where you buddy people and you develop people rather than doing it yourself to say, okay, what is it? So I'd rather do some coaching and mentoring for them to say, how do you become the best person you can be? What are the skill sets that you need to develop? How do you develop the team? How do you actually... So I think part of the stuff I come across is often there's a mismatch between what the nurse director wants, what the medical director wants, what the chief exec wants, and how do you actually make sure those voices are heard in the finance director we mentioned earlier on, you know, they're always a conflict. How do we handle all of that in a way that is joined up? That people are speaking from the same hymn sheet. Yes, you may have a high-powered sort of heavy meeting at board level or even at exec level, but how do you get that into practice? You know, I can chew the cud in a private meeting with you, and but when I come to a board meeting, well, I'm unified. Because I need to send the message that we're joining, we're all in it together. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, we're 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 coming towards the end of um the podcast, and it's been quite fascinating um listening, and uh, I'm sure the listeners are fascinated by uh, uh, by your development in. I know you don't like the word journey, but you know journey into your. Um, <laughs> You know, journey, world of yeah. yeah medicine and leadership um i mean I'd, I'd i'd like to ask this you know what are are there any secret sources or are there any secrets in uh secrets to good medical leadership or is that sort of an oxymoron that, that we can't really ask no i think it's not like there, there isn't a secret as such i think it's be a human being who can have a conversation and listen, you know, you mentioned listening already. Listen without judgment. Listen it from their perspective. And I think the key thing is listening. And the second key thing is doing something about it. You know, taking some action and making it visible. So, for example, if certain behaviors need to change in certain situations, make sure they change. Make sure you're the first one who inhabits those behaviors. So, you know, as Mahatma Gandhi said many, many years ago, be the change you want to see. And therefore, that's the role model. 
yes, I won't get everything right. You know, absolutely not. You know, there's no way that's everything. I'd... But if I listen to enough people, there'll be moderation. There'll be adjustments. And I think the key message is to be malleable enough, but occasion be forceful enough in doing the things that you feel are right. And the patient comes first. The patient is right every single time. And I think it's like the old adage is, you know, the customer's right. And until we start listening to that voice, we need to start being humble enough to say, yes, you know, we get the humility is another skill. We, need, you know, we have to have humble enough to say, this is not right. And I didn't get it everything right. So, let's, so having the ability to listen, integrate, and just adapt and change, you know, your leadership style will change. But you've got to be patient focused. I know everybody says that, but how focused are we? when we're happy to send a patient home at three in the morning because we need a bed. Is that really patient focus when he or she has nowhere to go and the house is empty? Been empty for two weeks and it'd be freezing when they get home. You know, and those sort of simple, simple things is, yes, I need the bed, I've got five people waiting in any, &E, but am I doing the patient I'm sending home any good by sending them home at three in the morning? And those are simple things you've got to start looking at. Is am, am I a human being that I would would I want that for my relatives when I'm nowhere inside because they live on their own and I live miles away or I'm in another country to be sent home? And and that happens. These are sort of things that happen on a regular basis. And that's not knocking my colleagues in the emergency department. They're just saying, how do we how do we have that? conversation with our managers to say this can't be this can't be happening i mean i'd like to end uh, i'd like to yeah. end with this what 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 would be your three top tips to um to yourself um the future dr manjit who who is uh, about to embark on his medical training in in nottingham what would your three top tips be to him having experienced what you've experienced over the last decades okay first thing would be don't be afraid to say you're suffering if things are not just be vulnerable if you're vulnerable acknowledge the vulnerability don't be ashamed about your vulnerability don't cover it with shame because it's not nothing to be shamed about okay if you get things wrong again don't beat yourself up things will if you can hold your hand up and say i did everything that was possible on the day with the information available, then you're okay. And thirdly is to don't compare yourself with others. We're all different, you know. We all have a different trajectory of where we want to get to. Some will get there like this, some will get there like this, but we'll all get there. And we all bring different skills to the workshop. And I think in the workplace, we all bring different skills and and acknowledge the diversity that you have around you and work with it because they bring a richness that you can't get otherwise on your own. Well, that's awesome, Dr. Manjit. Um, thank you so much. How, how's how's uh, the best way for people to get hold of you and, and to um, look at your work? Well, they can ask 
I'll send you my email. My email address is mandy.obrye at nhs.net. Great, That's great. the easy way, easier to get it. Now, my personal one is mandy.obrye at gmail.com. Awesome. Thanks so much, Dr. Manjit. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you.